our potholes are filled in in the parking lot. Also, uh, I am now told that you guys actually park over here if there's room. Well, some of you actually did. Yay. Cool. So you can park over here. We can actually exit over there. You can still exit around the back. So there's lots of places to be able to go and park now. So we have parking back. And Because we may, over the next few weeks, have different things like semi-trailers parked in the parking lot as they do other stuff. But they did open other parking up for us as well. So it's kind of cool. Uh, one thing to tell you about before we start is next Sunday morning at 11 a.m., we're doing a kid's baptism class. And if you are thinking about having your kids get baptized, we want you to take them to that class, go through it. Uh, Christy will ask some questions and go through some things and hopefully in the end determine if maybe you know, your kids are old enough to understand what it is and be able to get baptized. So if you're interested Next Sunday, right after the service, actually right, it's during the 11 o'clock service, so right at the beginning of the 11 o'clock service, that's where it's going to take place. I told, I said uh, two weeks ago, someone told me I, I had too many inside jokes, and I don't mean to have inside jokes up here like parking lot potholes and stuff like that, so I'm trying to do a lot better, so I'm just going straight forward. Welcome if you're new. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. If I could, and they're childproof, apparently, so I can't grab one. Um, they look like this. And on the inside, you'll get some notes that go deeper as well, some questions that go deeper into what we're talking about today. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. It will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, this is Matthew chapter 9, verse 34. It says this, But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So you know this is going to be a fun one. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much for being a God who rescues and redeems and saves. We thank you that you have stepped into our lives and you are the one who gives us new life and you are meant to be the object of our faith. So I ask that we would live in that truth and in that reality, that everything else that, that wants to pull our focus away from who you are would be set aside so we could see you as you are and worship you every single moment of every day of our lives. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are going through a series all about Jesus' authority. We are almost done. We have next week and then Easter Sunday, and then we move on to our next series. Uh, the series is taking us verse by verse through Matthew chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus gives what's called the Sermon on the Mount. This is the most quoted of Jesus' sayings that he ever gave. And Matthew will go on to round it out by showing Jesus has the authority to teach and say all the things that he did. He actually goes on to really show that all of our lives should be surrendered and under the authority of Jesus, or they will make no sense whatsoever. We may think they do, but then we're just like that crazy guy that sits in the corner talking to himself. And if you've never seen one of those, it just might be you. Just letting you know. Uh, we all know somebody in our lives who like thinks they are so right, and everybody else is so wrong, no matter what you say. They're like, no, no, I know, because I'm right. You know somebody like that? Okay, if you don't, again, that's you. That's you. So... Uh, hopefully, over the last few weeks, we have come to a place where we trust our own three-pound brain a little bit less and trust Jesus a whole lot more. Matthew, coming to the end of his section on authority, he kind of circles around to something he started with a few weeks ago, and this is the idea of demonic possession or oppression. And how he deals with it here is going to be different than how he dealt with it earlier. Here what he will show is how the Pharisees mock him for what he does. Now today, I want it to be very practical for you, but it's also going to be a little weird because we are talking about demons and stuff, and you're like, oh, glad I came to this church service, right? So 
We'll try and round it out, give you some big concepts and ideas, and hopefully you'll get it by the time uh, we get to the end of this. So uh, I'm going to briefly discuss demonic oppression and things like that. Most people want to shy from, away from this in our modern age because we don't want to seem like we're weirdos. Yeah, so we are we're elements. That's how it goes. Um, some people, where some people want to shy away from it, some people want to blame demons for everything in their life. Like, oh, my car wouldn't start. You know, Satan's attacking me. No, maybe you should just take care of your car. <laughs> and that might... Okay, my, my next up a little bit. Uh, oh, I ate too much ice cream. I'm feeling bloated. The demon of gluttony is, is attacking me. No, maybe you just need some willpower. You know, oh, you're a jerk to everybody around. You're like, oh, Satan's making me irritable. No, maybe you're just a jerk and you need to surrender your life to Jesus and get those things under control. Okay. So like, I'm going I'm to just totally kill my counseling load today. That's what I'm going to do. So, And we all do this to some degree. We all do. We all say when things get hard, it's like, why is this fighting against me? Why are things so hard? Why? I'll tell you, sometimes God is the one who makes things hard so we would grow through these things. Not everything in our lives is meant to be easy. And to go through our lives thinking that easy things are from Jesus and hard things are from the devil is terrible theology. Because right now, you could go on iTunes. You don't even have to get up out of your seat and you can download a country music CD or reality tv show that's easy is it from jesus no <laughs> open your bibles matthew chapter 9 i just offended half of you that's okay all right all right i dealt with this about a year and a half ago and so i'll give you a refresher it's always good what does the bible say in regards to possession and things like that always a good place to start not possession but what does the bible say uh, can a christian be possessed by a demon so we're, i'm going to talk about that the word possessed can actually mean three things the first thing it can mean is own can a christian belong to the devil the answer to that is no no john 10 28 29 jesus says he is the one who gives us eternal life we sit and rest in his hand the father who is greater than all is given us to him so nothing can snatch us out of his hand the second thing that possess can mean it can mean actually dominate can a christian be controlled by a demon or by satan the answer to that is also no jesus cancels out that type of possession in matthew 12 25 to 29 can someone who doesn't believe in jesus be dominated by a demon and the answer in the scriptures to that is actually yes in matthew 12 43 to 45 we'll look at this later jesus says that people who don't believe and follow are what are called unoccupied and when you're unoccupied, you leave yourself open to all sorts of things. But if we are Christ's home, God's spirit lives in us, then Satan can find no place in you. The third thing possessed can mean in the scriptures is influence. Influence. Now, can a Christian be influenced? Yes. The answer to that is actually yes. John 10.10 10 says Satan wants to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan tries to tempt Jesus in this way in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Satan can never take authority over you, but he can whisper all those things that your heart so desires that will pull you away from who Jesus calls you to be. And this is why the scriptures calls what Satan does schemes. They're schemes. He tries to mimic God and pervert what God does. Christians can be accused, deceived, tempted. They can yield to those attacks, but they never, ever have to. Colossians 2.15 says Jesus has already disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to shame by triumphing over them by the cross. We don't have to do anything to win this authority. It's already ours in Jesus. And our challenge is to simply believe in his authority. So when we talk about demons, like I said a few weeks ago, don't think Hollywood and all that crazy stuff. Okay, We're going to look at what this kind of looks like. Matthew 9, verses 30 
32 to 34 is what we're going through today. And it says this. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. So the crowds marvel at the authority and the power of Jesus, while the Pharisees mock him. They mock him and say what he did wasn't really out of his authority. He, they just mock him for this. So, uh, like I did a few weeks ago, let me deal with the elephant or the demon in the room. <laughs> okay. uh, Jesus casts out a demon. And a lot of people immediately say, what's this demon stuff? You don't really believe in demons, do you? All this exorcism things. Well, yes, we do. But again, not how Hollywood portrays these things. Jesus casts out a demon. Jesus clearly teaches that there are things as personal, supernatural, evil beings. He believed that. He taught that. And too many people today look at this and say, well, that's just naive. It's this pre-scientific world idea that didn't understand the psychological and the emotional basis for all of these illnesses. They assume that Jesus was participating in this pre-scientific worldview that saw demonic activity as the basis for all of our problems. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, that's not actually true. Jesus very clearly in the scriptures, he will make a distinction between people who are sick, and people who are sad, and people who are depressed, and people who are jerks, and people who are stingy, and people who may be possessed. He doesn't treat every sick person the exact same way as if they're possessed. I think Jesus would look at us today and he would say, you are the ones who are being naive. If you do not recognize the multidimensional nature of evil and the multidimensional nature of our problems. I mean, do you think all of our problems in our world are only natural and human? I would say many of them are, yes. But if all of our problems are only natural and human, then maybe all the therapy we're paying for would actually work. And it doesn't seem like it's, it's actually working. See, there's something more wicked and more intelligent at work. And we are naive to think that evil only has one outlet or one form. It is both human and inhuman. It is natural and supernatural. It is personal and impersonal. And if we don't recognize the multidimensional nature of it, we're the ones being simplistic. We are the ones who are being naive. Now, having said that... Also keep in mind that Matthew's purpose in this passage is not to teach us about demon possession or how to exercise somebody. That's not what it's about at all. That's not his point. When Jesus casts out the demon, what he wants you to see is the religious leader's reaction to it. They're very upset with him anyway, but when Jesus does this, they write off what he did by saying, oh, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. In Luke eleven fifteen, they say, by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Basically, what they're saying to the people around them is, don't believe him, he's a charlatan, don't follow him, he's faking you out. He's really the devil. That's what they're saying. Now, what Matthew does in his gospel is he just, he'll just move right on from this place. Because if, if you look through all these other weeks, you see all the places, all the authority, all the things that Jesus has done. And he says, and what he's saying is, this is how they reacted to it. And they're a bunch of dummies. And, and he moves on. But since we kind of broke it up week by week by week by week, you don't really have that straight course in that. So I'm going to kind of deal with what Jesus says back to these guys and how this whole thing kind of works out in this. Hopefully, it will help you to expand your view in what's taking place. Because it's all, again, about the authority of Jesus. In the book of Luke, Jesus will turn the tables at this point, and he will say these words to the Pharisees. He says, if I cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, how do your followers cast them out? Now, that's a very interesting statement that a lot of people just overlook. What Jesus is saying is that the Pharisees were casting out demons. What? 
Yeah, I know. This is going to be the weirdest message ever, right? Oh, oh my goodness, what's going on here? We actually know from ancient writings, uh, like the story in Josephus, says that this is actually true. The Pharisees cast out demons. They delivered people from their problems. Now, follow me in this. I think what Jesus is saying here, it's very nuanced, and it's very sophisticated, and I hope it will help you be able to see that. What Jesus is saying when he says this, I think, is this. There are many ways to deliver people. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about helping people in their problems. And this is really true even in our culture today. We always think there's only one way to do something. So, like for a few years ago, what was it? We all need tolerance, right? We all need tolerance. If you're just more tolerant, all of our problems would be solved, right? Does that work? Nope. See the last election? Yeah, right? Doesn't work at all. So then we go on and we say, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, it was if we just got rid of this primitive notion of God, if we just got rid of God, then that would make everything better, be no religion, everybody would get along. 20th century was the most bloodiest century in our history. So, that work? No. So then we go, oh, well, we need to really teach our kids self-esteem. Let's just give our kids all kinds of self-esteem. Tell them how great and wonderful they are. And what does that do? They become selfish. They're self-centered. It's like, you didn't like my post on Facebook? Well, unfriend you, because it's all about me. In the scriptures, Satan gets kicked out of heaven for pride. He had so much self-esteem that he got kicked out of heaven for it. So, we're trying to turn our kids into the devil. (laughs) Way to go! Oops, right? Seriously. Jesus, what he says is, everybody is being way too reductionist. That's my $2 word for the day, by the way. Reductionist simply means everybody's trying to find one answer when there's actually many. And what I mean by that is, take example, depression. Okay? So you look at depression. Why does a person get depressed? A biologist will come and look at this and they will say, well, it's chemistry. We've got to give them a pill to figure out so their body regulates correctly. A moralist will say, no, 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 it's sin. It's sin. You've got to get these things right. You're guilty. Repent. A psychologist will say, well, you just don't know how to cope. We've got to teach you coping skills and learn how to do that. And a superstitious person will say, oh, no, it's a demon. We've got to cast the demon out. But Jesus says it could be any of those things. It could be a combination of those things. Biblically, God made us multidimensional. And that means that we are physical and we are social and we are spiritual and we are psychological. And a person is only going to be able to be helped in certain ways when we understand how we're actually made. How is it possible the Pharisees themselves were delivering people, that they were helping people? How could they do exorcisms without the power of God or the power of the devil? And the answer is there are lots of ways to help people with their problems. And I think Jesus says we have to be able to recognize that. We have to be honest about it to speak into it, or we're never going to be able to explain the gospel clearly. The Pharisees, they could have done uh, emotional talking, just, oh, yeah, I hear you, I empathize with you. Yes, they they could have done uh, self-discipline and willpower, just push yourself to do the right thing. They they could have got people into group therapy. That's what we call it today. I don't know what they'd call it then, but like group therapy. But the fact of the matter is they were delivering people. Now, when I say delivering, again, that's different than salvation, okay? This is helping people in their problems. You ever hear somebody say, if it works for them, great. Is this thing even on? Really? (laughs) So we all hear somebody say at some point, like, oh, if that religion works for them, if it helps them, don't knock it, great. Do you know how superficial that is? 
The Pharisees were the one group of people Jesus actually yelled at. He doesn't yell at anybody else. He yells at the Pharisees. He doesn't yell at Zacchaeus, the corrupt tax collector, rich guy. He doesn't yell at prostitutes. He doesn't yell at the corrupt, sinful, poor people. He doesn't yell at anybody. Nobody except for the Pharisees. He's kind to everybody else. But the Pharisees, he's like, you're a brood of vipers. And I know to you that's not, not a big deal. But that's like fighting words back then. That's like, I can't say it. The, uh, <laughs> he's like, you're a bunch of hypocrites. And, and he's like in their face and saying these things. Why? Because they were self-righteous. They were twisted. They're legalistic. They're form of religion. It was toxic. And Jesus says, don't do what they do. Don't do that. And yet they produced people who had changed lives. And I think the truth when we look at the world around us is any religion and any philosophy and any theory and any group of people can produce men and women who say that their lives have been changed, who say, I have overcome bad habits. I have new peace in my life. Religions and philosophies directly at odds with one another in their teaching, completely contradicting one another in the nature of the world and God and the afterlife can all produce changed people. They can cast out demons, per se. Why? Because we are physical and social and psychological beings. And there's all sorts of ways in this to get help. But therefore, we can never, though, say, therefore, that means that thing is true. We can't say that. Tim Keller writes this. He says, Christianity is true is not true because it works. Of course, it helps people with their problems. It's not true because it works. It works because it is true. But there are many things that are not true that still work. Many religions, many philosophies, even Phariseeism, it worked for people, it helped them. And so we have to be able to see that there are many sources for helping people with their problems, helping people to move out of the places where they are. See, just because you've been helped doesn't mean that what you have is actually the truth, though. So what Jesus does... In Luke 11, as he actually moves on and he talks about this with the Pharisees, he gives this other line. Uh, in Matthew 12, uh, 43 to 45, this is kind of what he says in the book of Matthew. It's the same thing. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, that's desert, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. And I read that and you're like what in the world did jesus just say what's what's going on there and so i'll explain it to you so like when a demon goes out of a person and it goes through desert places then it comes back and no it's right it's it's just do you know that people for two thousand years have struggled with these words now i'm going to tell you what where i think is jesus is going with it you can disagree with me if you want but i really think this is where jesus is going in this just so you you have a you have a heads up i think jesus is saying if you are looking to anything else in your life to be your hope and your redemption and your salvation it will never work In the end, you'll be worse off than before. I am the only one who can come into your life and really and thoroughly change and help you understand the true nature of redemption and salvation and grace and hope and life. Because you do not have to be a Christian to overcome alcoholism. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to get your marriage back together. You don't have to be a Christian to be good at your job. I think it's the best way to kind of do all those things, but it's not the only way. Because Christianity is not just about practically overcoming your problems. That's not really what it's about. Because if, if that's all it was about, you'd never be able to tell if Christianity was true. Because there's all sorts of ways to do that. Jesus says, if you turn to anything else other than me, in the end, you're going to be worse off than before. You can try to sweep your home clean. And, and we do this all the time. We give ourselves over to different things in our lives. It could be your New Year's resolution and your willpower. How's that work out for you? 
Right, not. Or it could be your body pump class, and I've never been to one, but I don't know what to pump it up. It is not a tumor. You know, just. Or your spin class, and you got the person, you know, I've never been to one of those either, but ride your bike! Come on! I, I don't know. What, what you do is you're giving yourself over to somebody to motivate you, to possess you, to give you the strength to be able to change. But in the end, it never follows through. It never works. And Jesus says, unless it's me, you will always find yourself worse off than before. Let me give you a couple examples of this. If you are a dude, if you're a guy, and you maybe you cried a lot as a kid. If a lot of little boys cry as little kids, sometimes people walk up and they will say, don't cry, be a man. Man up, don't cry. Nobody says that to women. I don't know why, but they only say it to little boys. Now, can a little boy use that to get some emotional self-control? Of course they can. Of, of course they can. They, they cast out this lack of self-control because nobody wants to be an emotional wreck. But what do they put in its place? You all of a sudden, you get, this, you get this fear of what are other people thinking about me? This fear of, oh, I'm not being manly enough. And what happens? They end up being, in the end, worse off than before because they've given their lives over to fear. They, a lot of these people like that, they become bullies later in their life because their whole lives are about people's perception of them. And so they put up these walls to keep everybody away. How about this? Uh, I've got a friend. He lives in Arizona, so it's not talking about any of you. So, okay, just get over that. Uh, at one point in his life, he drank too much, did a whole lot of drugs, treated his wife like crap. Then he had kids. And he says, my kids changed my life. So I'm talking to him about this. He's, he's a believer, right? And he says, my kids changed my life. And so he stopped drinking so much, went to church, tried to be nicer to his wife. So he cleans his house. He sweeps some things, casts out some demons. But what did he put in his place? He puts his kids. He puts his kids. So what happens when his kids grow up and move out of his house? Or what happens if his kids do something that thoroughly disappoint him? Or what happens, God forbid, if one of his kids actually died? The whole reason for his house and order would crumble, and he would be worse off than before. That's what Jesus is saying. This is why over the last few weeks I keep asking you, if you call yourself a Christian, have you really given yourself to Jesus? And if you haven't, what have you given yourself to? There is something in our life that is going to drive us. And if it is not Jesus, it will drive you into the ground and it will destroy you. I love that through a lot of Jesus' teaching, you see that the people who had these disorderly houses, where Jesus always talked about how they were closer to the kingdom of God than people who are really moral. Because the moral people were always like, I cleaned my house, I did it, I don't need God, I'm doing it so well. And they always push God to the side. It's the people with the disorderly houses that are close to the kingdom of God. It's why Jesus says the prostitutes and the sinners and the killers and the whores are going to the kingdom of God before many of us. Because the lie at the root of our problem is that we're in charge, we can fix it. That we don't really need Jesus to have control of all of us. Maybe that one little part over there, but not this over here. To get self-control without Jesus in your life only confirms the lie. And it sets us up for a much greater fall later on. A lot of counseling today only looks at certain issues in your life. Like maybe you're overweight and you need to lose some weight. So let's get you some exercise. Or maybe you're socially awkward. So they want to put you in different support groups to help you connect with people. Or maybe you're depressed. Or like, let's get you to think positive thoughts. And they keep running towards all these things, not realizing that at the base of our lives, who we are is we were designed to have a relationship with God. And Jesus is the one who comes and restores that relationship with God so we can be the people he made us to be. We are always trying to figure out our lives on our own. But what we need to know on the bottom of that is that we are loved. God does offer us grace. He does offer us hope. We need to truly understand the gospel that Jesus is the one who came to save us. He is the one in authority and all of our lives need to be surrendered to who he is. Uh, sometimes people want to come to me for counseling, not because I'm good, because I'm free, okay? 
I can tell you, I am not very good, all right? So they want to come and talk to me because they, they think I can fix them. This is one of the reasons why we're doing this counseling training next week. You should all come to that, okay? Sign up. We, we'd love to have you. We'll feed you lunch. It'll be great. And if you want to learn how to, like, meet and talk to one another, great. Sign up. Come to that. Okay. So, just whittling down my load, just doing the best I can here. When people come and talk to me, they usually don't want to hear about the gospel. I sit there and I'll say, you need to surrender your life to Jesus. You have all these things going on. You're trying to figure out all this stuff. But the gospel, you need to understand that it is Jesus who makes all things new, including us. And you need to surrender and trust him with your life. They don't want to hear that. What they want to do is they want to sweep their own house clean. Give me some practical things. They don't say those words, but that's really kind of what it means. And I want, they don't want to surrender to Jesus. They want to get some practical things to do it themselves. And it never works. It never works. This on? I'm going to say it. Whittle down that load. It never works. It is the gospel. It is the gospel. We surrender ourselves and our lives to. We must understand there is a God. His name is Jesus. And what he says counts. Not what your parents say. What Jesus says counts. Not what your professional peers say. What Jesus says counts. Not what your friends say. What Jesus says counts. Not what you say. What Jesus says counts. When we, in a sense, are possessed by him, we begin to live and walk the life he calls us to. Because we're not possessed by him, we'll be possessed by something else. The more self-control you get by giving yourself to anything other than Jesus is going to become your master. And it's going to enslave you. Jesus is the one who wants you set free. That's what he comes to do in our lives. Anything else in your life is going to dominate you. I think this is one of the reasons all throughout history you always see revivals where there are the poorest people in the world. In third world countries, Christianity sweeps through those places, not because they're ignorant, but because they realize there is nothing else to hold on to. And it's God that's holding on to us. When you get to more materialistic societies like ours, God gets pushed more and more and more to the wayside. Keller writes this. He says, The more you learn, you can tap into other power sources and garnish and sweep and put your house uh, in order without God. You'll do it until you find too late something much worse is in there, something that's controlling you and driving you into the ground. This is why when the religious leaders mock Jesus, what he says is, I and only I am the one who can truly redeem and save and rescue you. That's what he says back to them. Any, anything you use in your life to try and, you know, break down a stronghold, it's going to actually make a new stronghold in your life. Keller says Jesus does it thoroughly and completely and permanently. I mean, it's not in our lives good enough to say, oh, I believe in Jesus. It's not good enough to try to emulate him. What it means to be a Christian is that all of our lives and all that we are are surrendered to all that he is. That in a sense, as I said, we let him be the one who possesses us. And I know we only think about that in negative terms like the exorcist and head spinning and green goo flying and stuff like that. But think of it like this. You know, what, what, what are the definitions of that word possess that I talked about? Own. Own. Who is meant to own us? Jesus. So we become free. Who is meant to dominate us? That we are meant, our lives and minds are meant to be controlled by what he says. It's Jesus. He, in, the really, in a real sense, is the only one who can do that. As we surrender our lives because he is in authority. He becomes the object of our faith. In Ephesians 4, to 24 Paul says this, Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
What that means is we examine everything that comes into our lives. And we ask the question, is this what Jesus wants? You know, most people, even when they become Christians, what they do is they take all of their cultural back and bring it right into the gospel. And we view Jesus through this cultural lens. I think the longer we follow follow Jesus, the more we have to start stripping away what culture has said and simply see him for who he truly and really is. And trust him in our lives. To truly be followers of Jesus means we put off everything, everything, and live in what he calls us to. That means that we get to continually rejoice because our lives are found in him. In, in the book of Matthew, i got this little heading in this section, and one of my commentaries calls this exercising a dumb man, because dumb meant mute. And I just thought it was funny. Nobody else, first service didn't think it was funny at all either, but I thought it's really funny, because I'm like, yeah, he needs to exercise the dumbness out of us. Like, dumbness, come out, right? Because we are all so dumb so often, because we're always latching onto things, thinking things or people are going to fulfill and put our lives back together, and nothing does. Nothing does, except for the God who sets us free. And he sets us free for the purpose of worship and loving and following him. I mean, the, there's this beauty in what Jesus says here. We need to be a people who are so enthralled by the power and the goodness and the authority of Jesus that we truly become set free from what possesses us. Because anything that is not Jesus is less than Jesus. It's like Jesus says to his disciples in Luke 10.20. He says, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Our reason for rejoicing and our joy is meant to be that we have been set free. That we have salvation. That our God has the authority and the grace to set us free. So our question needs to become, for us, what have we given ourselves to? What is possessing us? Because if you're honest enough about this, you will know that, that yes, we say we love and follow Jesus. And there's times in our lives when everything is surrendered. But it is so easy, as time starts to go, just get distracted by all of these things. We start running after other things. And all of a sudden we realize those things have their hooks in us so deep. And we're like, I just need to be free of this thing because I ran after it and now it's got a hold of me. And Jesus is like, yes, I will set you free. And I will love you and I will bring you back into my phone. And sometimes it's hard as we start to get those hooks pulled out of us. And sometimes it hurts. But Jesus longs for us to be a people who live in great freedom and great, great grace where he is the only one who has authority over our lives. This is what we talk about communion every single week. Communion is where you come and you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us and you dip it in the wine or the grape juice. Mine is blood that was shed for you and me so that we are these people who are truly, truly set free, that the gospel of his goodness and grace is spoken over our lives and we live in the goodness and the authority of who he is because our God is amazing. And I would encourage you today to lay down everything in your life at the throne and the foot of Jesus. And trust him and let him, him be the one who has authority over you. Uh, the band's going to come up. I actually could have done this at any point because, hey, I'm kind of like the band, right? So I can be like, <laughs> as they do, uh, there can be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, they would love to pray with you. I mean, if you have something in your life that you feel like it just has its hook so deep in you and you don't know how to move past that and get out of that, they would love to begin to pray for you about that. We're like Keystone Cops today. We're just like we a little dance move. Like, okay, go. I got to tell you, Jesus sets us free for the purpose of freedom and joy and hope in life. And he wants us free. 
So please, if you have anything, go and pray with them. There's offering boxes in the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done. So you actually have to get up and actually do it, just like communion. Uh, there's some food in the back. Grab something to eat. Maybe meet some other people. Develop some relationships. So you could begin to start talking through some of these things, where you could honestly tell somebody what things has its hooks in you, what things that, that you want to surrender so that, so that Jesus sets you free. And you live under his goodness and his authority and his grace. Uh, Eric is going to come. There, Eric's going to come pray because it's not to make it awkward. Because anyway, guys, look, Jesus is God and Lord over all, and He longs to set us free. Let's live in that freedom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being with us this morning. Um, we thank you for your words that truly bring us freedom, Lord. We thank you for your presence that brings us freedom. Lord, we thank you that you have removed every obstacle that stands between us and yourselves. You have dealt with our sin. You've reconciled us to yourself. And as we all sit here, Lord, this morning, um, many of our houses are in disorder. Lord, and yet you've come to put things back in order, not by any magic trick, but by being with us. You promise never to leave us, never to forsake us. And Lord, if we miss that point, we, we miss everything, because it's all about you. It's all about your presence in our lives. You are our peace. You are our comfort. Lord, you are our hope and our joy. And I thank you that you meet us right where we are. You meet us uh, in our suffering, Lord, um, whether it is physical or emotional or psychological or spiritual, Lord. We see throughout uh, this series, Lord, your authority you brought to comfort those who are suffering, those who need you and Lord, we thank you that you are that comfort for us. So, Lord, I, I pray that you would help us to believe what you say, that you would help us to trust you, that truly, Lord, um, you are big enough and you are good enough to be trusted with our deepest hurts, with our deepest challenges, with our greatest fears and anxieties. Lord, help us to bring those to you, and may we find grace and mercy and comfort in your presence. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.